1: The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense, political talk without the boring parts. I'm John Weiner. Today we'll talk about Jeff Sessions. Trump has devoted more Twitter time to denouncing his attorney general than any other member of his administration. Of course, because Sessions is protecting the investigation by the special counsel Robert Mueller, does that make Jeff Sessions a hero of the resistance? We'll ask David Cole. He's legal director of the ACLU and legal affairs correspondent for The Nation. Also, the latest in the Stormy Daniels story, we'll speak with Katha Pollitt, our chief Stormy correspondent. First up today, Barbara Ehrenreich. She's one of our heroes, the author of more than a dozen books, including the unforgettable Nickel and Dimed. Now she's got a new book out, and it's terrific. It's called Natural Causes, an Epidemic of Wellness, the Certainty of Dying, and Killing Ourselves to Live Longer. Barbara, welcome back. Well, it's good to be with you again. Well, there are lots of books about successful aging. What a great phrase. One of them that you read says, I quote, heart attacks, strokes, the common cancers, diabetes, most falls, and fractures are not a normal part of growing old. They are an outrage, close quote. Who is responsible for this outrage?
2: The answer, these people said, was you. You are responsible entirely for any inconveniences and disabilities that arise with age, because they can all be stopped if you do the right things and live the right way.
1: Your title refers to an epidemic of wellness, and June 9th is Global Wellness Day. The slogan is, One Day Can Change Your Whole Life. On Global Wellness Day, it says at their website, you should go to sleep at 10 p.m., before that, walk for an hour, drink more water, have dinner with your family, do a good deed, and don't use plastic bottles. <laughs> well we'll <laughs> do you have any
2: comment? Well, you know, there is a global wellness industry, selling the advice of gurus, every kind of product that the gurus can recommend, which is constantly changing. And with lots of conferences and events, Practitioners, you can find local wellness practitioners in any community affluent enough to support them. This is a very upper class pursuit. You know, if you're an ordinary American worker and your company introduces a wellness program, that doesn't mean anything good. It means they're going to monitor mostly your weight, and if it's above a certain level, you'll be, you know, pressured to get it down. And if you get out of the wellness program, if you opt out, you pay a fine.
1: Working class people in America do seem to be more likely to be overweight. A lot of them smoke. They don't look healthy compared to the people you see in you know, upper class shopping streets where nobody is fat, nobody is smoking, and pretty much everybody looks fit and young and healthy. Why is this?
2: Ah, oh, yes. In fact, I've noticed one thing about the rich is they're... Their skin glows. Yeah. My skin doesn't glow. Probably yours doesn't. (laughs) But they actually glow. So, yes, we are developing into um, like a class bifurcated double species.
3: Mm.
2: And then they have their luxury wellness spas scattered around the world where you can indulge in day long spa activities uh, that will, of course, make you glow.
1: But don't you think working class people should stop smoking and stop eating unhealthy food and start uh, working out?
2: <laughs> well, should, I'm not sure. I come from that class. I was raised uh, on a diet of, you know, gravy and pan drippings and butter on everything. And the smoke was, well, ubiquitous. Cigarette smoke was the scent of human habitation. Mm exercise, well, we had to walk to get to the bus or walk to school, but there was no such thing as exercise without a purpose to it. So I come from that class, the deplorables class, Mm. as Hillary Clinton called them. So I, you know, I have deep roots there in all of those vices and participate in them in various ways, and I'm not judgmental. About other people i don't you know i'm when i'm up with upper middle class friends, I will be criticized for example putting butter on my toast terrible and uh, you know i'm sorry I'm admitting it that's what toast exists for <laughs> to be a vehicle for butter but yes there there are class differences, but there are these have some material basis one is that um Gym membership costs money. A personal trainer causes, costs a whole lot of money. The health foods are likely uh, to be more expensive uh, than the kind of crappy foods you can get at a convenience store. And you don't have hours and hours of time uh, to devote to the care of your skin and your body and so forth. It's, another, it's a different world, different assumptions. Smoking. Can I say something in defense of smoking? Please. Will this get you off the air in L.A.? I don't know. <laughs> well, let's give it but, a try. I mean, I quote um, in, my, in my book, a, a working-class woman, saying why exactly she smoked. Because it is that's the working-class form of self-care. Hmm. When you're, doing, you're running around, say, in a restaurant, and you, you have hardly any breaks, you do this thing, you light a cigarette, And that is what you're doing for yourself. The upper middle class should not be so judgmental.
1: Well, one of the things that we are all told by a whole lot of nonprofit organizations is that early detection is the key to health, and uh, early detection can save our lives. So much of medicine now is about early detection. For example, uh, to take an example from your book, the bone density scan to prevent things like hip fractures that can lay you up for weeks, and if you're old, you can end up in a nursing home. You got a bone density scan. How did it go? Well, I was diagnosed
2: with osteopenia, which perhaps sounds pretty scary, right? Yeah. Only about half women of the women over 50 have it. So that's not a disease. It's sort of a made-up disease, and partly made up in this case by Merck, the pharmaceutical company that manufactures a pill for it. I did, a, I did this research just by Googling around the time I had the bone density scan, and it did not seem like a good deal to me the medications that are supposed to cure it have their own bad effects one of them ironically being uh in some women causing a tendency to more bone fractures <laughs> so the evidence is not good on that and i that's where where i began to get really skeptical about everything including mammograms colon colonoscopies and all those other Sacred rituals uh, that we kind of expect, especially over fifty.
1: In your book, you say you have now given up annual physicals and cancer screenings. I thought the correct position was that we're in favor of preventive medical care because it's a way of reducing high-tech treatment for advanced diseases, treatments that are expensive and invasive. Isn't that true? Well, you have to look at the you have to look at the research. Like on mammograms,
2: international comparisons show that countries that do lots and lots of mammogram screenings do not have lower death rates from breast cancer than do uh, countries that do not. An individual can say, oh, it saved my life. We don't know that. Tumor might have gone away by itself. And there are also risks to finding out you have uh, some kind of detectable problem and that is that then they start doing biopsies and other things that really are kind of undermining to your health. And this is not just my opinion. Doctors groups, uh, including, um, finally, the U.S. Proctological Association, uh, have begun to not recommend prostate cancer screening for men anymore because if it leads to surgery, uh, it may be destroy the surgery. May be taking out a a tumor that was going to go, not going to grow anyway, in the lifetime of that man. But in the meantime, you're leaving him with incontinence and uh, probably erectile dysfunction. That's a high price to pay.
1: So why so, why do you think there is so much screening and testing now? Could could somebody be making money off of this,
2: John? <laughs> One basic problem is we have a for-profit medical industry, by and large, in this country. They have a problem with well people. I'm mm. a well person. You're probably a well person. Yes. They, and if, if you're over 65, you have insurance. And so what can they do? They can say, well, maybe we'll find a problem. You know, at least we have a market among the well people for all these screenings and tests. You could say that's one kind of motivation. Another is that there is a huge anxiety about dying in our society. I, I'm, I'm so surprised when I talk to my own friends, people of my own age and younger, they do not want to talk about this subject at all. They're terrified and see that these, these tests, even if they are empty rituals, as something that will ward off the, their eventual horror of dying.
1: You have a lot of skepticism and a lot of good arguments against screening and testing, but but what about Medicare for all? Aren't don't we support Medicare for all?
2: Oh, I sure do. Uh, and I, and one thing that needs to be looked at here is the huge investment in people, elderly people, with over sixty five. We have Medicare for them right now, while other people, you know, get basically nothing. But we don't want to just necessarily generalize what goes on with Medicare. We should be examining this and say what procedures and interventions make sense. And I, I, I'm, I'm talking about a lot of things that don't make
1: sense.
2: Yeah. Like one of the things I said, it seems to be seems to be. I haven't done the research on it. That makes sense is prenatal care for women. You know, and it's going to be young women who are having who are pregnant. Yes. But The maternal mortality is actually rising in the United States right now, while all this investment goes into relatively useless procedures for elderly people.
1: Last question here, Barbara. You're not just uh, a best-selling author of more than a dozen books with a lot of uh, (laughs) opinions. You are also a trained scientist. What are your credentials? I have a PhD in Cellular Immunology which it turned
2: out was crucial to this book and understanding why we die.
1: So why aren't you teaching biology in a university? What, what happened?
2: Well, you know, John, um, a lot of us got derailed by becoming political activists in the 60s and 70s. That's what derailed me. <laughs> okay.
1: And, <laughs> and uh, I, I believe that the women's health movement had something to do with this in your case.
2: Oh, yes. I was very active in the women's health movement, starting at about 1970, around the same time as Our Bodies Ourselves came out, the book. And, you know, there's a big wave of of women getting active around these issues for many, many reasons. But one of which was that they didn't trust doctors. They didn't like the way childbirth was over-medicalized. We didn't like the way the doctors, who were 40 years ago, Over 90% male, treated us, and I was part
1: of that. Barbara Ehrenreich, her terrific new book is Natural Causes An Epidemic of Wellness, The Certainty of Dying, and Killing Ourselves to Live Longer. Barbara, congratulations on the book, and thanks so much for talking with us today.
2: Oh, thank you. My pleasure.
1: Next up, Attorney General Jeff Sessions. He's the person Trump has attacked more often than any other member of his administration. He did it again on Monday this week when he said, quote, it's a disgrace what's going on, close quote. And he said he wished he had, quote, a different attorney general, close quote. Of course, that's because Jeff Sessions is protecting the investigation of Trump by special counsel Robert Mueller. Does that make Jeff Sessions a hero of the resistance? For comment, we turn to David Cole. He's national legal director of the ACLU and legal correspondent for The Nation magazine, and he teaches law at Georgetown. His most recent book is Engines of Liberty, How Citizen Movements Succeed. David, welcome back. Thanks for having me, John. Well, we want to start with the FBI raid on Monday. on The office and homes of the private attorney of the president of the United States, Michael Cohen, The president called this an attack on our country. We want to know whether that's the way you see it. My understanding of what happened is that in order to get a search warrant, you have to convince a federal magistrate that there is probable cause that the premises contain evidence that a crime was committed, and that the only way to preserve this evidence is with a surprise raid, not by asking for it with a subpoena, because the person in question might destroy it. Is this correct?
4: Yeah, that's correct. And, and not only that, when the government goes after files in an attorney's office, you know, that's, that's an extraordinary step. They don't do that lightly. And their own internal procedures provide that they have to get very high level approval before they can even ask a judge to authorize them to conduct a search of an attorney's uh, offices. And so it has to be approved by the the lead prosecutor in New York, the head of the office, the U.S. attorney there, who was appointed by Donald Trump. It also has to be approved by uh, an assistant attorney general, the very, basically number two person in the, or number two or three person in the Justice Department, appointed by Donald Trump. And then they have to go to a judge and demonstrate probable cause to believe that there's uh, evidence of of crime and that uh, they can't get it through the ordinary uh, means. And then they also have a whole set of procedures that are uh, put in place because it's, attorney files for how it's reviewed and uh, and ensuring that they're not invading other um, uh, clients' privileges. But, you know, Trump made a big thing about the attorney-client privilege, but there is a well-established, going back to the foundation of the privilege itself, exception to the privilege, and it's called the crime-fraud exception if you're using your attorney to commit crime or to commit fraud i mean there's no privilege there is an exception to the privilege so you know i i think here you know we'll see what the what the facts uh, ultimately reveal but there's reason to believe that this lawyer violated the campaign finance laws by paying off Stormy Daniels violated other laws by uh, in getting someone to threaten Stormy Daniels' uh, child uh, if, uh, if she didn't shut up about uh, Trump. And, uh, and, and it sounds like uh, from, the, from what we're seeing now that there may be, there may be other payoffs uh, that were uh, involved as well from this very attorney. So he's, he, if he's engaging in criminal conduct, he can't, on behalf of Trump, he can't invoke the attorney-client privilege to protect that.
1: So was this, as the president says, was this raid on the office in homes of the private attorney of the president? Was this an attack on our country or is it an example of the rule of law?
4: Yeah, I think it's the latter.
1: Working for the president doesn't get you immunity if you've committed a crime.
4: That's right. And if in, if, in fact, there was not probable cause and the magistrate you know, should not have issued the warrant, that issue can be litigated. But this is the way the law is supposed to work. So no, it's not an attack on our country. The The president, by attacking the ordinary processing of the rule of law when it applies to him, is the one who's engaged in an attack. So the
1: president on Monday once again Publicly attacked his attorney general. He said he wished he had appointed a different attorney general. Remind us about why Trump appointed Jeff Sessions attorney general in the first place.
4: Well, you know it's it's remarkable that 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 Trump is so has been so critical of Jeff Sessions because Jeff Sessions is Trump's most loyal servant. Jeff Sessions was the first member of the Senate to come out in support of Donald Trump. And he was his strongest supporter throughout the campaign. You know, so much so that when the Access Hollywood tape came out and, uh, showing Trump bragging about grabbing women by the genitals, Sessions was asked by a reporter, would that constitute sexual assault, what President Trump was, was bragging about doing? And he said, no, I, 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 wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't go that far. I mean, he, he, he was willing to, when everybody else was condemning Trump for the Access Hollywood tape. Jeff Sessions was going out and defending him, and he picked Jeff Sessions because Jeff Sessions reflected his agenda. He is a, uh, a he sort of a, harkens back to uh, to sort of the Southern resistance to the civil rights movement. That's how he sort of came up in in the world. He he, he very um, prominently prosecuted a number of black. Civil rights activist for encouraging black voters to come out and vote. When he was the, uh, a U.S. attorney in, in Alabama, he was uh, an opposition to, uh, a big opponent to criminal justice reform uh, as a senator. When he, when, when the the Congress was considering whether to extend the hate crimes law to uh, hate crimes based on sexual orientation or gender he opposed that and he said he opposed it because he just didn't think that women and and, and gay people were subject to that kind of discrimination <sighs> uh, and, and, and 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 Trump named him to uh to be in in charge of the office that is supposed to be enforcing anti-discrimination laws
1: but the reason that Trump is so publicly angry at Jeff Sessions he says every time he complains about Jeff Sessions, is that Sessions recused himself from the Russiagate investigation. Did he really have to do that?
4: Yeah, I think he absolutely had to do that. I mean, he uh, was caught essentially lying to Congress about his own connections uh, with the Russian ambassador while he was working for the Trump campaign. And so, you know, there was he really had no choice but to recuse himself. It was the right thing to do. He did it. But but Trump is, is you know, Trump wanted uh loyalty. He wanted loyalty and he wanted somebody who would act like uh, his private lawyer, Cohen, and do whatever it took to uh block uh anything that might potentially harm the president. And here Sessions really couldn't do that. He had been caught out in a lie before the senate judiciary committee and had he not agreed to uh... recuse himself it would have been a major major impediment to his uh... doing anything but the ironic thing to me is that Sessions not only was, was, was Trump's first supporter and most loyal supporter during the campaign, but in his job, he has done more to uh, further the Trump agenda in, in really troubling ways than almost any other co- cabinet member. He's been very effective. He's reversed uh, all of the uh, reforms that Eric Holder brought in to try to reduce mass incarceration and re- revived the war on drugs and reversed the Justice Department's position on voting rights cases. So now instead of supporting the right to vote, it's supporting suppression uh, of the vote. He's under his tutelage for the first time in its history. The Justice Department supported a a constitutional exemption to an anti-discrimination law in the Masterpiece Cake Shop case. So he is doing the boss's bidding, and he's doing it faithfully, and he's doing it effectively. And yet, what, what what he gets for it is he's the most criticized member of the cabinet you know and i think at the end of the day what it shows is that trump cares more about his own skin than he cares about the agenda that he supposedly got elected to office to to uh, further
1: i want to just stick with that agenda for for another minute so jeff sessions actions as attorney general have been challenged by the aclu and outraged all of us on immigration policy on voting rights on criminal justice on protections for LGBT individuals. But of course, all of these things were issues in the campaign. Trump openly campaigned on all of these issues, promising to change Obama's policies. He won the election. Now he's fulfilling his promises. Isn't that the way democracy is supposed to work?
4: <laughs> well, you know. Yes and no. So, yes, democracy is supposed to work in, in that we are supposed to elect people who will advance principles and positions that we choose. Um, you know, it's, a, it's an odd an oddity of our particular democracy that the person who got the three million fewer votes in the in the uh, national campaign won the election. But 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 really, I think that the, the thing is you expect when there's a change of administration to be changes in policy. Absolutely. And when when Obama came in, there were changes in policy from Bush. And when Bush came in, there were changes in policy from Clinton. So you expect that. But this Sessions has taken that to an extreme. So, I mean, just to give you, you know, one example in the voting rights context, the administration has not just changed its policy, but has actually switched sides in litigation, where it had previously been arguing that the state of Texas was engaged in racial discrimination in its uh, gerrymandering of its districts, and on the exact same evidence, when when the, when when Sessions came, it took over, he. Reversed the position and said Texas was not engaged in racial gerrymandering. Of course, it was. The court found that it was, but the evidence didn't change. It was just that Jeff Sessions wasn't willing to call Texas out for what they were doing. And in Ohio, uh, in a case that we're involved in at the ACLU, it's in the Supreme Court right now, Ohio was striking voters from the rolls, from the registration rolls, if they didn't vote. Uh, sort, of presuming that they had moved, if they if they didn't vote and didn't respond to a single card sent in the uh, in the mail to them, this was a clear violation of the National Voter Registration Act, the motor voter law, and had been seen as a clear violation by the Justice Department for 20 years since the law was enacted uh, under the um, first Bush administration, under the Clinton administration, under the second Bush administration, under the Obama administration, consistent across the board, this is what the law means. You can't do this, Ohio. And in fact, they filed a, uh, a brief in support of our case challenging the Ohio practice in the Court of Appeals. We won. Ohio took it to the Supreme Court. And the, uh, under Jeff Sessions, the Justice Department switches sides and abandons a, an interpretation of the law that had been, you know, the, the the view of the Justice Department for twenty years under both parties, and suddenly it's in favor of knocking people off the rolls and suppressing the right to vote. That's not, uh, you know, that that's extraordinary to just say a law means some means the opposite of what we said it meant for the last twenty years.
1: Last question: Do you think Trump will try to fire Robert Mueller, and if so? What would happen then?
4: We thought there were a lot of people out in the streets for the women's march. If he fires Mueller, you're going to see uh, massive, massive demonstrations. Lindsey Graham, no, no knee-jerk liberal, uh, has said it would be the end of his uh, his, his administration. His administration, if he fires Mueller, uh, you know he's got to let that go. And I, th- I think you know he's he's talked about firing Mueller. He hasn't done it yet. He's been talked out of it by his White House counsel. At least we know at one point. I think it's only when his back is against the wall and Mueller's going to bring him down anyway would he in fact fire Mueller and at that point uh I think you know his administration uh is over but but it remains to be seen and, and you know the, the the you've got a Republican House a Republican Senate will they have the nerve to go against their president and try to hold him accountable. And if they don't, then what happens in the midterms? But I don't think at the end of the day, he's going to be able to stop this investigation from running its course one way or another. David
1: Cole wrote about Trump and Jeff Sessions for the New York Review. Thank you, David. Always great to have you on the show.
4: Thanks for having me, John. Pleasure.
1: Now it's time for our Stormy Daniels update. And for that, we turn to our chief Stormy correspondent, Katha Pollitt. Katha, welcome back.
3: Hi, John. Thanks for having me on the show.
1: Well, the latest in the Stormy story is that her attorney, Michael Avenatti, says Trump's statement last week provides a big boost to Stormy's case. That was when Trump told the press on Air Force One that he was not aware of the agreement and the payment His attorney, Michael Cohen, made to Stormy. This was the agreement, of course, that Stormy would not talk about having had sex with Trump in exchange for $130,000. And that any dispute over this agreement would be settled secretly in arbitration and not in open court. Trump has sued Stormy for violating the agreement. And says she is required to settle this in arbitration. Could you bring us up to date on on where we stand now, what Avenatti's recent position has been?
3: Well, his position, which makes a lot of sense, is if Trump did not sign the agreement, the agreement is invalid. You can't sign a nondisclosure agreement with someone you know, on behalf of someone who doesn't even know about it.
1: Yeah, so Trump can't enforce an agreement whose existence he was not aware of. I agree with you. Right. That seems like a yeah. pretty strong <laughs> argument. So Avenatti wants to start with what the lawyers call limited discovery. This means deposing Trump, getting answers from him under oath. What what does Avenatti want to discover?
3: So uh, what... Um, Michael Avenatti hopes will happen is that he will have this discovery in which he, uh, Trump, has to go on the record of did he know about this agreement? Where did this money come from? <laughs> did did he, did the money come from him? And was the purpose of the agreement to silence Stormy? These are all questions that America would love to know the answer to.
1: So let's go back a step. What do you think about Stormy? Will Stormy save us?
3: Well, I really hope Stormy will save us. It, it's kind of a long shot, isn't it? But uh, I love Stormy. Stormy is great. Stormy is so... She's smart. She's very uh, funny. If you follow her Twitter feed, it's quite hilarious. She is what she is, very plain spoken. She makes no bones about it, which is uh, sets her in contrast to almost everybody in the Trump administration. Now, my aunt, who is um, very uh, has the wisdom of, of old age, she thinks that, that Stormy is going to be the end of Trump, not because people will be so shocked that he slept with a porn star. In a one-night stand, I have to say, this is always described as an affair. Sleeping with someone once is not an affair. Okay. Um, it's, a, it's a one-night stand. But my aunt believes that the nondisclosure agreement will bring him down because it's sealed with this $130,000 payment, uh, which seems to have been made, I don't know, by by the lawyer, Michael Cohen. And then the question is, you know, well, where did he get that money? And it could be seen as an illegal campaign contribution if the money came from Michael Cohen but was intended to benefit Trump and happened during the campaign. So, of course, his Trump's fans won't care about it, any of that. But I just have to believe that, There are pro-Trump people out there who are not immune to every single one of the bad things that Trump and his minions have been doing.
1: Well, let's assume that Trump gets deposed the way Michael Avenatti wants to. Let's assume that Trump lies about Stormy and gets caught lying, and the Democrats, meanwhile, have retaken the House and... Uh, vote articles of impeachment against Trump for lying about having had sex with Stormy, does this remind you of anything?
3: Well, it certainly does. It certainly does. And when you think of all those people going on their high horse about Clinton back when, and, and many of whom turned out to have been doing similar things themselves, it is quite amusing. But, you know, you yourself laid out why that isn't going to happen, which is even if we take, we Democrat, Democrats take back the House, they probably won't take back the Senate to the extent that you would need to have an impeachment trial work. And I just don't think, I mean, I see no signs that the Republicans are ready to abandon their golden haired, their orange haired boy.
1: And there's one other parallel. Even though in the Bill Clinton case, there was a strong argument that he had lied under oath. Impeachment failed. Bill Clinton supporters yeah. didn't change their minds. So having sex with a woman who was not his wife did not end the career of the presidency of Bill Clinton at all.
3: And I would not expect this to end the presidency of Donald Trump, except there is also don't you sometimes feel like if only we can just drive him over the edge? <laughs> oh, dear <laughs> You know, maybe it'll be a lot of little things, and he just won't be able to take it anymore. Then, of course, we'll have the terrible problem of Mike Pence. I mean, people always forget this when they are thinking about getting rid of Donald Trump, that Mike Pence would, um, in some ways, would be worse, although saner maybe less likely to blow up the world, but more likely to, you know, put women in, in the re-education camp.
1: Oh, dear. But we, uh, think, we think Mike Pence probably has not had sex with a porn star.
3: Well, you know, they do say that those are the ones that, mm. you know, it's just like everyone who's obsessed with how evil homosexuality is, is really fending off their own urges. So we don't really know what any of these people are up to. We only see a carefully crafted image.
1: In your column on Stormy, you take up the issue of her statement that she was not coerced into having sex with Trump in that one-night stand. She consented. What do you make of that?
3: Well, I thought that was a little sad because, you know, and she said, you know, this isn't a Me Too situation, but actually kind of is a Me Too situation. Because what Me Too is all about, really, is women who are put in this position where they're kind of nudged and bullied and find themselves in an awkward situation where, you know, having sex with someone might be the, the simplest solution. I don't know if you saw this story in The New Yorker that everybody was talking about called Cat Person yeah. by Kristen Rupinian. And this was a story of uh, two millennials in which the woman the woman ends up sleeping with this kind of awful guy because she can't really get out of it it would be it would be she'd have to be rude she'd have to say well i'm sorry i'm leaving uh- and somehow she she can't do that. Um, and I think that a lot of Me Too situations are like that. It's your boss. What do you say? If you say the wrong thing, you might lose your job. And I've heard so many stories like this from women who are like Stormy, um, although maybe not, you know, porn stars, but who are very strong and, and self-willed and smart and everything and have a lot going for them. But, you know, to make a fuss. Is, too, is a step too far because they might lose something important like their job.
1: And Stormy indeed was hoping, even though she knew it was unlikely, that Trump would get her a spot on Celebrity Apprentice. She knew it was unlikely, but it was his show, and he said that's why he wanted to talk to her. And so she wanted to see if she could accomplish that and get out of the porn business.
3: Right, and you know, she says, you know, I came to your hotel room, so you got me. Let's get this over with. That's that. I mean, that's my my phrasing of what she said. But it's sort of like, well, I did go there, so it's my fault. Yeah. I wanted I wanted something, you know, in business, and so it's my fault if it turns into a, a sexual deal. Um, and that's something men don't have to contend with. That men can men can go to Donald Trump's hotel room. And just do, a, you know. I mean, he has lots of men on the had lots of men on the Apprentice, and those the men didn't have to sleep with him. So it's an issue that gets to the heart of inequality, inequality in the workplace. That there's always this extra thing that women have to deal with.
1: Another question, sort of a college quiz question: Compare and contrast Stormy with Melania. They seem oh. to be they seem to be opposites, you know, the porn star and the wronged wife.
3: Yes. Well, you know, I got in a little trouble because I did say that I felt sorry for Mel- Melania. I call her a miserable bird in a gilded cage. My aunt and every other woman I know and probably every man I know said she made her choice. And people don't like trophy wives, but... I feel Melania wouldn't be the first woman who married a man because it seemed like a good idea at the time, and has been forced to live with her mistake. I called it in my call. I called it a youthful mistake. People pointed out she was thirty-five; it's not so useful. <laughs> okay. useful. But you know, I, so I have to qualify by saying, you know, yeah, Melania did a lot of bad things. She supported Trump's birtherism nonsense. She uh, supported him against the many, many women who have come out saying that he sexually harassed them she you know has been sort of by her his side although she always looks angry miserable <laughs> and, like yes. waiting for it to be over when she yeah. does it um but I, there's just that little piece of me that thinks well she made a terrible mistake she just wanted to have a rich man and then she'd go out for lunch at fancy restaurants with her friends and everything would be okay
1: Last thing, Trump's attorneys have argued that Stormy Daniels could owe Trump about $20 million for violating the nondisclosure agreement about having had sex with him. Do you think the president will sue the porn star for $20 million? <laughs>
3: Well, that would, be, that would be very amusing indeed. Uh, Michael Avenatti was hilarious about that, because what that is based on is that every time she mentions any of this, it's another uh, million dollars. Penalty. Another million another dollars. Another million dollars. But as he pointed out, look, there, it is a contract that says, I give you $130,000, and if you break the contract, you give me $20 million. <laughs> that, <laughs> that is not a contract that any judge would uphold.
1: Katha Pollitt, she wrote about Stormy and Melania for her new column in The Nation. Katha, thanks for talking with us. Always great to have you on the show.
3: Oh, thanks so much for having me.
1: Finally, Martin Luther King's connection to the world of sports and politics. That's the subject of this week's episode of Dave Zirin's Edge of Sports podcast. Of course, that's our sister podcast at The Nation. The Edge of Sports podcast, where sports and politics collide. Tune in every Tuesday at thenation.com slash sports. Start Making Sense, The Nation podcast, is co-produced by the L.A. Review of Books and recorded at the studios of Emerson College, Los Angeles, located in the heart of Hollywood, with technical assistance from Justin Allen. Our show is recorded and edited by Lyra Smith. Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Frank Reynolds is our executive producer. Annie Shields is our engagement editor. Katrina Vanden is editor and publisher of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. Find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com and subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts at iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and now at Google Play. I'm John Wiener. Tune in to start making sense next week for more political talk without the boring parts.